Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. Strange place to start on a first sermon series in Nehemiah. But Nehemiah, chapter 8, I want to help us understand a critical part of Nehemiah. Um, and out of curiosity, uh, taking no shots at this pastor or other pastors you've had. How many of you have ever um, sat through a sermon series that's walked through the book of Nehemiah? I'm just curious. Oh, we got a few. Yeah, great. How many have ever done it and it has not been associated with a building program? A couple. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Then good. Um, we're not in a building program. So uh, that's not why we're in Nehemiah at all. Uh, probably my first exposure to the book of Nehemiah happened in um, Bible college, and it was in a class on uh, homiletics, which is the class you go through or classes you go through on preaching. Because you get late in the book of Nehemiah, and you have these moments where Nehemiah is incredibly burdened that the people know the word. And when you start asking questions like, what really is preaching? And it's kind of this to be honest with you, it's a little bit of a strange thing we do culturally. This concept that you're going to come, and you're going to sit, and you're going to listen to someone explain uh, the Bible to you in a, in a really a lecture format. It's not very interactive, and um, you certainly can ask questions later, but, but it's much more lectionary, and, and it's kind of unusual. Um, they go to Nehemiah to help explain that. And at the, right kind of in the middle of Nehemiah chapter 8, I just want to read to you verse 8. Uh, and then we're going to get firmly into the introduction this morning. It says this, and they, they gathered the people together, and, and I'm going to give a little bit more of the historical context in a few minutes um, as we work through the book. But just so you're aware, uh, these people did not know the word. They did not uh, have the word available to them. There, there's been so long. Uh, Ezra had tried, but uh, this had fallen away. And so there's a real lack of comprehension and understanding uh, there's even a fair argument that can be made that a lot of the people were borderline illiterate because of the folks that had been left behind, the folks that traveled back. But Nehemiah chapter 8, they gathered all the people together and they begin to read the word to them. And it says this in verse 8, they read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. At the very core level, that's what preaching is supposed to be. The word explained. That's really how you could boil it down. Um, the, there's no new revelations, right? I, uh, good preaching doesn't come and, and, and suddenly you're like, I've never heard or seen that ever, anywhere, ever before. This is amazing. I don't even see it there, but that just sounded great. No, it must be firmly rooted and planted in the word. Um, it shouldn't be the headlines, to, to be honest with you, the, the latest, greatest thing. It doesn't mean sermons are never going to reference, obviously, what's going on in the world or even the seasons that we're in, but it's not primarily uh, supposed to be a political diatribe or a philosophical presentation, but it's supposed to be, what does the word say and how can I understand it better? And so as we approach Nehemiah this morning, there's no, there's no building program driving it, and, and I'm not even... I'm not taking shots at churches that, that will work through Nehemiah with building programs because lots of it has to do with building. But that's not what this is. It's not um, because of some other ulterior motive other than very simply this. Nehemiah is part of God's word. And I believe that there are truths in Nehemiah that can convict us of sin 
encourage us in righteousness, and frankly, continue to propel us to pursue Christ and to glorify God. And so this morning is going to be a very atypical sermon um, for our church and for me personally, because it's going to be introductory. So anytime we start a book, we always have this sermon, right? And so we've done it in Job and Ecclesiastes and Romans and Mark and both Corinthians and 3 John and 1 John and Jonah. And this morning, we want to understand what's going on in Nehemiah. Why are we here? And why is this book in the Bible? And um, how can it ultimately be a blessing to us? My, my goal would be to help us to understand a very core truth, central truth to Nehemiah, and so that our hearts are prepared for the weeks to come as we, by God's grace and the power of his spirit, work our way through this delightful, delightful book. Let me start this way. A clergyman once said this, will we be scared to death or scared to life? Leaders are forged in times of crisis. They're forged in times of crisis because it's times of crisis that character and courage are revealed. When the threat is real, when the pressure is on, that's where leaders are made. It's where the truth of who they really are and what they will do really begins to come forth. Uh, Nazi Germany, with the threat impending, Winston Churchill famously said this, that, quote, we shall not fail or falter, we shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools, and we will finish the job. It was actually in the middle of the Great Depression, 1933 roughly, that President Roosevelt famously said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. He goes on, though, and he says this, there is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. There are many ways in which it can be helped, but can never be helped merely by talking about it, we must act and act quickly. Both these leaders are in a season of crisis, Churchill facing uh, World War II, Roosevelt facing the absolute economic disaster that America went through in the Great Depression, uh, accompanied um, by, by the massive droughts that took place and the sandstorms that swept through the West. And they were calling people to band together to do something. Ernest Shackleton, famous Arctic explorer, uh, his ship is met with disaster in 1915 when the endurance becomes stuck in the ice. He realizes that he and his crew are going to have to wait out the winter um, and try to survive on this floating iceberg. And so Shackleton did something very interesting. He began to insist that all the men did all their normal duties. Whatever their job was, he wanted them to continue to do that. Sailors continued to swab decks even though he knew the ship would be destroyed. Scientists collected specimens. Others were assigned to hunt for meat. He knew that daily routines and tasks, including manual labor, would help establish order in the ground men in uncertain time that was filled with dangers. Leaders understand that a moment or seasons of crisis that is to bring forth courage and character cannot be a moment where you stand still. You'll die if you do. You must always think of life in this context that it is like climbing a muddy hill and the moment you stop climbing is the moment you start sliding backwards. But that's hard. That's brutally difficult. Hard isn't even a strong enough word for it. Because in a season of crisis, there's nothing else we want to do than to maybe feed our souls with distraction, pull up the covers and go back to sleep, take some medication or some drink or something that would seem to push away the darkness and the crisis that we're facing. But leaders recognize that cannot happen. Three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, newly named by their Babylonian captors, 
are faced with impending disaster. They didn't know what would happen. Uh, They were told that the music is going to play and everyone is to bow down before this image. They understood that this was idolatry. They're standing on the plains of Dura. Suddenly the music begins to blare. The call for everyone is to bow down and they knew, they know at the very core of their being, if they stay standing, they will surely die and there'll be no mistaking who they are and yet they stand while everyone else bows. James Hamilton in his commentary Nehemiah asked some, I think, pressing questions about these kinds of moments in our lives. What do we do when we're faced with moments that are going to require real strength and character and are at the same time terrifying to us? Moments when you have to confront somebody and you don't know how they're going to respond and the reality is track record tells all of us that when you confront people, rarely do any of us respond well in the immediate it's a terrifying moment. It requires strength and character, the power of the Spirit. Moments when you could suffer real hurt, and yet you're called forward in obedience. Moments when you could experience rejection. Moments when you're facing a test that despite all the preparation you've put into it, there's no guarantee you're going to do well on this test at all, and it seems like life hinges on it. Moments when you face a new normal that's terrifying. A new normal is like the birth of a baby, facing a health issue, a financial change, moving, a new job, or even retirement. Moments like having to confess sin. Moments of integrity when no one else is around. Moments that require courage and character fill our lives. And I would actually argue that they are the markers of everyday life for most of us. Moments that constantly call us to have courage and character. It's not limited to battlefields or kings or presidents or prime ministers or even explorers. I would actually argue that these kinds of moments are our everyday life. Will I today live in the strength and the character that God has given? And yet they certainly seem to come to these precipice kinds of moments also. Moments we look back and am I going to do what's right or not? You know, sometimes it just happens in normal life, right? Like, I remember one time when I was driving for this construction company, and it was my daily job, and I spent anywhere from 8 to 10 hours a day just driving all around the D.C., Baltimore area, checking on job sites and uh, dealing with customers and, and uh, looking through houses and doing point-up, and, and I just drove all day long, every day, for years. That was my job, and this supervisory role. And there was a day when I was driving and I was stopped at a light and I'm watching the light and and I've been to this intersection a thousand times. And I knew that I was going to get a green light and I was going to be able to turn left. And I knew that when that happened, the other side of the road coming the opposite direction, their light turns red. Well, sure enough, my light turned green. I started to make the turn in my F-250 pickup truck. It was rainy. The back end got a little squirrely on me, so I'm not getting through the intersection as fast as I can, and I'm watching in the opposing lane as these three high school boys are driving their car, and none of them are looking through the windshield. They're all fiddling with the radio. And so it's one of those I'm I'm pedaling the gas pedal, trying to just get enough uh, traction to get out of their way. I don't get out of the way. They hit the side. They T-bone the side of my pickup truck. Uh, None of them are hurt, but their car is probably totaled does a little bit of damage to the Ford, right? Shoves me a little bit. I I drive off to the side. We 
We call the police. The police show up, and the passengers admit that it was a red light. They had looked up at the last minute. They had run the red light. They knew they were in the wrong. I felt relief because my boss isn't going to be mad at me. He was a short, red-headed Irishman who was a little bit of a fiery guy. So I was glad Bruce was not going to be mad. And about two weeks later, I got a call from my insurance, the company's insurance company, and they had the other insurance company on the line. They were just going to take a deposition. I said, okay, great. And so they start taking a deposition. They start asking questions about the accident. And I'm, I'm telling them all the things about the accident. I think we're, we're home free, right? Because these, well, the passengers even admitted to the police officer. And then the other insurance agent said, do you have any restrictions on your driver's license? And I do. I'm supposed to wear glasses because the front of my left eye is flat. My right eye is 20-20. My left eye is pretty bad. And that day, I had taken my glasses off because I had a headache. And I remember that moment so vividly. Because I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew it. And I said, yes, I do have a restriction. Oh, what's that restriction? I, I have to wear corrective lenses. Were you wearing glasses that day? And they asked the question that way. Had I worn my glasses that day? I certainly had. Just not at that moment. I think we all face these kinds of moments, and, and some of them just seem so small. And some of them seem far larger and far costlier. The book of Nehemiah is about these kinds of moments. Nehemiah is not a pastor. He's not some prominent minister of the gospel. He, he actually doesn't even have all this administrative experience, although he proves to be an amazing leader. He isn't a king. He's actually much more like a middle management kind of guy. He deals with unmotivated people, opposition from without and opposition from within, He's trying to take over a job that's been started and stopped and needs to get going again. The momentum is all gone. Nehemiah's moment and our moments, the moments of your life and my life that call us to have character and courage have two massive things in common. First, these moments are so much bigger than we are. How we will do life, how we will do our work, our parenting, our marriage, our friendships, our relationships, how we will conduct ourselves in the life of the church, how we will deal in the lives of our community, how we will, whether we will have integrity or not, whether we will stand for truth or not, these moments are so much bigger than we are because they will call this into question, will we live for the glory of God or for ourselves? And then secondarily, God's faithful passion for his glory must become our passion. And so as we introduce Nehemiah this morning, I would call us to this, be on mission for the glory of God. Because God is faithful to his promises. Now, I have a terrible habit of starting illustrations and never finishing them. I've lied a lot in my life. By God's grace, that day on the phone, I didn't lie to the insurance agent. And yes, we ended up having to pay. Because I had my glasses on that day even though it wasn't my fault and had nothing to do with my glasses. And I tell you that just because I think a very common experience is when you have integrity, it still costs you, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to work out like all the fairy tales I was read as a child, where if you do the right thing, it turns out well. 
It seems like lots of times it doesn't. And so how do we function? What must drive us? It can't be what we we're always convinced this good outcome is going to be, but rather we must be on mission for God's glory because he is faithful to his promises. So the book of Nehemiah, how can we understand it? I want to make sure we all are on the same page as we journey forth uh, into this book over the next several weeks as we study through it. And so I think it's important, first of all, for me to give us the historical setting. It's important to know when is Nehemiah occurring and how do I understand what is going on here at all? And so let me walk us through this way. Let me just remind us uh, of, of some context. First of all, I would say this, why pick Nehemiah? Uh, the last book we finished right before our Christmas Advent series was the book of Job. It's the first book of the Bible written. Uh, it's the oldest book. And so it's not the oldest historical in the sense that Genesis certainly tells creation, but it's the first book of the Bible written. Nehemiah is the last historical book written. And so we really have these bookends, these wonderful bookends of what is going to take place. And so with Job, we got to see what was the first statement God wanted to make in the, in the Old Testament. And in Nehemiah, we kind of get to see what's the last statement that he wants to make before there are 400 years of silence that occur before the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah is the last historical book, and to really understand, we have to be reminded of the nation of Israel, because it's all about the nation. The nation of Israel begins with Abraham and God making promises to Abraham. And so he tells Abraham to move to this land, to the land of Canaan, and to dwell it. He's dwelling it. He says, I'm going to make your descendants into this massive people group. They're going to be as the stars of the heaven or as the sand on the seashore. Uh, certainly Abraham then has a child and we have Isaac and then Jacob and Jacob has his 12 sons. Uh, after uh, a time, they end up down in Egypt, right? And they're in captivity and ultimately in slavery in Egypt. And for 400 years, they're there. And then God sends Moses and he brings the nation out. And he brings them through, and we're familiar with the wilderness wanderings. They wander in the desert. Uh, a whole generation dies off. And then finally, finally, the nation of Israel enters in and begins to conquer the promised land. Uh, it's, and what we would understand is a modern-day area of Israel. All the borders don't match exactly, but that is the region that they move into. They go through a season of judges. Uh, and it's this cycle. They don't have a king. They don't have one ruler. And so that God would raise up a judge, and the, the judge would do that. He would kind of judge the land and work out what God's truth was. Uh, and it would typically call the people back to repentance and almost a kind of revival. And you have this cycle in the book of Judges that just goes on where you have a judge. Uh, the people do well. The judge dies. People drift back into idolatry. They start doing terrible wickedness. God brings a new judge. And you have this cycle all the way through the book of Judges. And horrible things happen and uh, terrible sin and, and reading the book of Judges is frankly like reading some modern day true crime novel. It's terrible. I, it, it's brutal. One day I'll preach through the book of Judges and that's just going to take lots of wisdom and discretion because it's just horrible. You get to the end of the book of Judges and there's a statement, the key verse of Judges is every man did that which is right in his own eyes. It's anarchy. It's unbelievable the way people live. And so you come to the end of the book of Judges and the driving forces, we might be in the land, we might have a place, but what we really need is a king. And it's really to point their hearts ultimately to the need of King Jesus, the Messiah. But at that time they say, no, we need a king. They choose Saul. Obviously King Saul does terrible. And so the first king of Israel chosen by God is David. And God begins to make promises again. 
And so he's made promises through Abraham, promises through Moses with the law. Now he makes promises through David that you're going to have a descendant and this will be the king who rules and reigns. And the nation is at its peak under David and his son Solomon. The kingdom is the largest, it's strong, and it's safe. When Solomon moves off the scene, though, the nation is divided. And it's split into two. As a result of rebellion, there's almost a semi-civil war. The northern part becomes known as Israel, the southern part of Judah. The, the nations are in great conflict with one another. They all have their own prophets. And if you read through the Old Testament, you read these prophets. Some of the prophets are to the northern kingdom, some to the southern kingdom. They all have one theme. Repent of your idolatry and return to God. And they don't. And after a time, God sends the Assyrians into the northern kingdom to judge them. They come into the northern kingdom, they take them captive, it leaves the kingdom of Judah alone. And so from 722 BC, the Assyrians are have invaded and are in complete control of the northern half of what we would understand as the nation of Israel. And the southern kingdom, though, fares a little better. And you have a cycle of kings in the southern kingdom, and some do well and some do poorly. Uh, you have ones like King Manasseh who actually sacrifices his own sons to the god, the idol Molech in the valley of Gehenna. And so eventually God, after many years of warning through prophets, sends in the Babylonians now to conquer the southern kingdom. And in a series of three stages, they come in, 605, 597, and 586 B.C., and they lay siege to Israel, and in each of these, they take away captives. The first journey of captivity in 605, they take away the princes, the royalty. Uh, the next, they take away any of the craftsmen and kind of the merchants. We, we, would, we would think of them as more the middle class and the, the working class. And then the last one, they essentially take anybody else of value. So the only people left in the kingdom, when they finally depart, are the abject poor, widows, orphans, people who have nothing, people who have no influence. And it was very strategic and intentional. They haul the people away. They, they destroy the city walls. They tear down all the walls around Jerusalem. They light it on fire and they destroy the temple complex. Archaeologists have discovered uh, the remnants of the burned remains from this conquest. They estimate that the fires burned at least as high as 600 degrees Celsius or over 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Hot enough in some places to begin to melt rock. So there's nothing left, and they, they haul the people away. The king is enraged after this 18-month siege this third time, enraged that this is what his people have had to endure. And so at one point he marches even the young men forward and has them slaughtered, lest any of the Babylonian women find them attractive. This is, if you want to know more about this time, then you read the book of Daniel and you'll see what this captivity was like with the abuses, the wholesale slaughters, and the incorporation of them into the people. And so the nation of Israel is essentially non-existent at this point. It's a, what we would call a vassal state or servant state of Babylon. Well, you fast forward about 70 years or so, roughly, and God begins to bring judgment on Babylon, and they fall to Assyria. And so Assyria is kind of where modern-day Turkey would be. Um, and, and then you have Babylon more in modern-day Iraq and Iran. And so the Assyrians come in, and they conquer Babylon, and they take over Babylon now. 
And eventually then, shortly after that, the Medes and the Persians, even further north. And so in India and northern Turkey, they come down and they conquer both Assyria and Babylon. And so you have this constant turnover on the world map. Egypt is down here trying to do their own thing. But you have all this wars and all these wars and fighting. And then that brings us, after about 70 years of captivity, to a series of returns. And the first guy is a guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel is passionate that God's people would follow God. And he recognizes for that to happen, we need to be back in Israel. We need to have a temple where we can obey what God would call us to do. And God in his kindness, uh, 70 years after the captivity began, he sends Zerubbabel back by this Persian king to go back to Israel and to rebuild the temple. And he does. He goes back and he rebuilds the temple and it's the temple that later Herod will redo and call it Herod's temple. And it's the first journey, but not very many of the Jews go back or even want to go back. It's a much smaller temple. It's a temple that that other people, uh, the people that were left behind are saddened about because it's so tiny and, and so much less ornate than Solomon's temple that had been there previously. Solomon's temple, which was covered in gold on the inside, and Zerubbabel's temple looks a lot more like just the old wood panel siding that you see. But they have a temple, and they should be able to worship, but the people do not respond in totality to Zerubbabel. They're still overwhelmed with what they've experienced. And so after about another 60 years, a man named Ezra is sent back. And he's sent back to Jerusalem. And Ezra's main goal is to rebuild the people. Zerubbabel may have rebuilt the temple, but it's obvious that there's still the culture of the Jews has been destroyed. And so he goes back with his passion to rebuild the people as a distinctive nation once again. He has a vision that they would be a pure people who worship God and who return to the rule of God through his word. Actually, that section I read in Nehemiah is later Nehemiah calls Ezra back to basically preach some more. Ezra is the one who begins to recognize fully that you must have the word ruling in people's lives before there'll ever be any sense of revival. Well, Unfortunately and predictably, the people don't respond well to Ezra either. And so you have some that, are, that return and others who don't, and they drift back into idolatry. The walls of the city itself still remain just a pile of rubble and burned debris all the way around. So at this point, we're 130 years after all this destruction has happened in Jerusalem, and nobody, nobody has been burdened to rebuild the city. They're just living in the ruins. Why do we do that? When our lives seem ruined, when, when things don't work out the way we expect, when it's disaster, and so I'm not, I'm not talking about small things, but life can be overwhelming, and moments of crises can just be absolutely overwhelming to us to the degree that we just cease functioning. Discouragement sets in. Depression even. And so some begin to think that our God can't be trusted and so why bother? And they return to idolatry. They resist the calls to truth and that leads us to Nehemiah. And so after Zerubbabel has rebuilt the temple and after Ezra has tried to bring culture back, 
God raises up Nehemiah. And Darren read this morning from Nehemiah 1, that moment when Nehemiah is just broken in his very soul and he's weeping over the condition. And so he is sent back by the king to go back to begin to rebuild the city walls. But the reality is while Nehemiah is building the walls of Jerusalem, he's on mission for far more than that. Nehemiah is on mission for nothing less than the rebuilding of the nation of God. He is on mission to rescue God's covenant people. And so when Nehemiah is coming, it's not just that Nehemiah um, is about some building program or uh, um, some temperature gauge, let's raise the funds for this, or uh, an edifice to himself, you know, like the, to name it, this is Nehemiah's city, like Herod will later do with the temple. Nehemiah knows that God has said, these are my people and this is what they're to do. They're to show who I am. The nation of Israel was always supposed to be a light where people came and saw. Come and see who God is. See a place where people love God and love their neighbor. See a place where they care for widows and orphans. See a place where they live in holiness and purity. See a place where they live in righteousness. Come and see the glory of God in the temple. That's what it was always supposed to be. And Nehemiah understands that. And so he is broken over God's glory. And so God sends him back and he wants the people to be an identifiable people. He wants them to be living in the land that was promised to them, dwelling in the city of God, Jerusalem, worshiping God as they should. And Nehemiah is the end. The city gets rebuilt. The temple is there. Worship is restored. There is preaching that's going forth. And yet even by the end of the book of Nehemiah, spoiler alert, you come to realize this about the nation of Israel. God's covenant people will always continue to drift into idolatry unless all of God's covenant people are saved. And so while the book of Judges left you hungering for a king, the book of Nehemiah leaves you hungering for a transformation of people's hearts. And then there's 400 years of silence. And then Jesus shows up. And so while this is the historical context of Nehemiah, it really does point us to Jesus. And so for that reason, the other really important thing to understand about Nehemiah before we even start working through it in the weeks to come is where does it fit in within God's redemptive historical plan? What do I mean by that? Uh, when we think of redemptive history, we're talking about how does history help us to understand how God redeems lost people? The very first indication is in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium. And in Genesis 3.15, God said, I'm going to send one who will crush the head of the serpent. He will give it a death wound because the serpent will bite its ankle, but he will crush its head. And it's the first promise there's going to come someone to deliver you, and this time he's speaking to Adam and Eve, to deliver you from your sin and to verify this, to show this. He slaughters an animal he skins it he clothes the shame of their nakedness and their sin with a bloody skin that he has made it's his way of saying someone's life must pay for yours to cover the sin of and the shame the shame of your sin it's pointing ahead to jesus and so in redemptive history that's the first marker that we see 
And you have all these other markers before you ever get to Christ. Redemptive history then is understanding what role does Nehemiah play in that grand story that just echoes, and we actually know from Peter that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. This was always God's plan. It's not that God said, let me create the world, this is going to be wonderful, and then it was like, oh no, somebody sinned, I better come up with plan B. It was always his plan to rescue wicked people. And so we understand that that is the grand story arc that's one day going to conclude with the return of Jesus Christ where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we have this wonderful story. Where does Nehemiah fit in that story? How does it fit and how do we understand it? And so we want to understand this role in redemptive history. Well, there are three evil methods of Satan that match three covenants in the Old Testament that we'll be able to clearly see from the book of Nehemiah. First of all, there is this Abrahamic covenant. In the redemptive historical plan, God chooses this people, and he starts with Abraham, and he makes a promise to Abraham. And in Genesis 22, 15 through 18 is one of the, I think, three different occasions where we see this Abrahamic covenant communicated clearly. It says this, the angel of the Lord, now the angel of the Lord, just so you know, um, there's many ways that the Hebrew can use this kind of language. And it can say angels of the Lord and angels of the Lord without an identifying pronoun. And, and, and so you're left wondering. But when you see the angel of the Lord, it is pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, it is the angel of the Lord that goes through the land of Egypt on the night of Passover. It is the angel of the Lord that appears here to Abraham. It is pre-incarnate Christ. And one of the ways you can tell that as a student of the Bible is when you read through the Old Testament, you see the angel of the Lord show up. See how they respond to worship. Because angels that are simply God's messengers, uh, and some of you are immediately, you have these images of children with wings, right? So, um, so messengers of God, created spiritual beings, they will never receive worship. They resist worship. I'm not, don't worship me. But the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament will receive worship. So the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is that moment when Abraham had been told by God to take his son Isaac to go up on the mountain range and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. This is mind-blowing to Abraham because God had already told him you're going to have a kid and you're going to have just children like the sands of the shore of the sea and he had no children. Then he has one son and God tells him to take this one son and go kill him. It's not irony, it's beauty, because he marches his son Isaac up onto the same mountain range that a few thousand years later Jesus would be killed on. And Abraham takes Isaac, and we know the story, many of us, that, that he raises his hand to kill him with a knife, and the angel stops his hand and provides a ram in the thicket, a replacement. Jesus is our replacement. He dies in our place. Jesus is the ram in the thicket for our life. But this moment of obedience, we don't earn salvation by obeying. But our obedience reveals if we are saved. 
If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments, obey me. You see, we live in a culture, and this is always important, and I, and I frequently hammer this point home to the point that some of you say, Steve, the nail is flush. It doesn't need to be hammered anymore. But I'm convinced Satan likes to creak them out. We live in the, in the buckle of the Bible belt where people think you can pray a prayer, ask Jesus in your heart, and then go live however you want to live. That's not what the Bible says. But we're called to repent of our sins, put our faith in Christ, and obey him, follow him, submit to him. Abraham's obedience is a revelation of his submission. And so God reaffirms this covenant. And it's a beautiful covenant, right? He says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you this land that you're in. You're going to bless everyone else. How? How is Abraham going to be a blessing to everyone else? Because out of the line of Abraham, the Messiah is going to be born. The enemies of God are going to be destroyed. God's covenant people are going to be blessed and be a blessing. How can this occur? This will occur because God is going to make them distinctly his people. And there's several things that show that Abraham's offspring are his people. The big one that he does is circumcision. It's this external sign. But there's supposed to be all these internal signs as well of obedience and worshiping only God and possessing the land. And so in other words, what they do, where they go, how they act, and what laws will rule them will demonstrate who they are. Well, Satan knew this. So both these nations, Assyria and Babylon, had a very particular method with how they conducted war. We have the Geneva Convention that's supposed to provide us guidelines how we conduct war. I'm not convinced any nation follows it. We're supposed to have these rules, right? Well, there were certainly no rules then. And one of the particular methods with the way both Assyria and Babylon would do warfare is when they went in and they invaded a people, they would, they would take out key people. They, this, this is why Babylon takes out the princes and the rulers and the merchant class and anyone with any kind of authority or influence. Assyria would come in and they would take away the same kind of people. They would take all those people out of the land and then they would seed the land with their own people. They would seed the land with Assyrians or Babylonians or even, even folks from other nations they had conquered. Why? Because they wanted to destroy the people group. And there would be intermarriage. And then their children would be born and you'd have a child that's now a product of, of a, maybe a, a Jewish mother or father and an Assyrian or Babylonian mother or father. And so the child's being raised in this split religious home. Which, which God are they going to serve? And it was intentional by Satan through Assyria and Babylon as an attempt to destroy the nation of Israel. And so that, it was so effective that even by Jesus' day, we have this group called the Samaritans, don't we? Who are the product of the intermarrying between the Assyrians and the northern kingdom. It destroys the people groups. Why? Because God had promised you're going to be a people. And so Satan wanted to destroy the people. While the people are scattered, while, while you have some of them living in Assyria and others in captivity in Babylon, the Abrahamic covenant could never, ever, ever be fulfilled while this is happening. It was impossible. God's promise had been made, and it was under threat of being a lie. You fast forward in redemptive history, and you have the Mosaic covenant. 
You have this moment when the people are brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're now a people group. They're a nation as far as a large people group, all descendants of Jacob. But they don't have any codified rules or guidelines. And who are we really? And they've come out of Egypt and they're going to want to bring Egyptian culture with them. And so God makes a covenant through Moses. Moses came in Exodus 24.3 and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We understand it the most in the Ten Commandments. The law was much more extensive than just the Ten Commandments. But God gives the law directly to Moses. Moses gives it to the people. And the people say, yes, we're going to obey it. And this is going to now identify us. Remember, how do you know who a people group are? You could look externally. How would they dress? How would they act? What music they would listen to? What language they would speak? But what are the rules that guard them and govern them? My kids all go to school and they'll tell you, if you put your hand under the desk, you don't want to do that because you're going to find chewing gum. You go over to a place like Singapore, you're chewing gum, you spit it on the street, and you can spend seven years in jail. It's a different kind of rules. Part of the way nation groups and people are identified is by their laws, by their rules. God gives the law to the nation of Israel, and it is a defining attribute. Nobody else is doing this. No other nation is leaving the corners of their fields uncut so that widows and orphans have something to eat. No other nation is embracing if a stranger comes to the land, we'll feed you and we'll clothe you and we'll give you hospitality. Come and see God in his glory. Experience what it's like to live among people who love God and who love their neighbor. The whole nation is going to gather together at key moments of the year and celebrations and and, in order to give sacrifice and call for repentance. and, And we're going to all celebrate at the same time. That's hard to wrap our minds around. The closest we can come is things like Thanksgiving and Christmas when it seems like everybody has off and everybody's celebrating. It's an entire nation defined by these laws. The whole law, Jesus tells us later, can be boiled down to two truths. Love God and love your neighbor. It's a call to holiness. To be distinctly different because they only worship God. And in this relationship, they will experience blessing and protection. This has been abandoned by the people. And it's what led directly to the captivity in Babylon. Manasseh going in and offering his own son as a sacrifice. Later, when the Babylonian king finally takes over Jerusalem and they destroy the city walls, he takes the current ruling king of Jerusalem, brings him to the palace and kills all of his sons in front of him and then gouges his eyes out. It's a way of saying the last image burned into his brain was the death of his own children because they had been given to idolatry. The prophets time and time again had called the people to repent and they would refuse. They would not obey the law. They resisted God's instruction Satan knew this. And so the temple is absolutely raised to the ground. And so the people are dispersed and the land is seeded with foreign invaders. And the the central piece of their worship in the law, the temple, is destroyed. The the presence of God, the Shekinah of glory of God had already departed from the temple. Ichabod is the word that had been put put on the temple. The glory has departed. And it was a way of destroying the people first and now their worship. It was their whole identity is gone. 
In redemptive history, you come to the Davidic covenant. You have the Abrahamic, you have the Mosaic, you have the Davidic. God told David this in 2 Samuel, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The promise of God to David was that he would bring the eternal King Jesus through his lineage. That king will rule and reign forever. This, this promise of God, this covenantal promise is under threat because frankly, there is no more kingdom, there is no more city, and there's certainly no throne room any longer. Fires ravaged through the city, burning, destroying, melting, ruining. Satan was on mission through Babylon to make it impossible for there to be a city to rule in or people to rule over. What good is a king if he doesn't have a throne? Nehemiah matters because it is all about a rescue of a people. It's all about a rescue of the word and it's all about a rescue of a location that will usher in the arrival of Jesus. Jesus, who will be the son of Abraham by whom all nations are blessed. Jesus, the word made flesh, who puts it in the hearts of men. Jesus, who rules and reigns in our hearts and who will one day rule and reign on a throne forever. 400 years of silence follows Nehemiah. But Nehemiah is actually a reminder that God is faithful to his promises. And I want to remind us this morning that God is faithful to his promises in Nehemiah, but also to us. Let me just, as we close this morning, give it to us in three ways. First of all, dark times call for hope. The covenant promises of God hinged on them being a people, the children of Abraham. The covenant promises of God hinged on the word, that they would know the word, obey the word, that they would worship God. The covenant promises of God hinged on a location. There's a reason that even in eternity future, it's called the New Jerusalem that will come down. All of these matter. And so while there's this grand cosmic uh, war going on where Satan is trying to destroy these covenant promises, then we have little Nehemiah, the cupbearer, enters in. One of the prophets who served God during the Babylonian captivity was Jeremiah. It was an incredibly dark and difficult time. Under the siege... God's people even resorted to cannibalism within the city walls of Jerusalem. I'm not sure it gets any darker. And in the middle of that siege, while they were waiting to be destroyed, and eventually the Babylonians were able to break through the gates of the city, and they went on a killing spree through the city. Jeremiah said this, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. That's one of only four prophecies in the book of Jeremiah. And there's another two in Isaiah, six different promises of God that he gave in the midst of the siege and the captivity taking place. Six promises that he gave, you're gonna go into captivity, but I'm bringing you back here. Nehemiah is a fulfillment of this promise. You will not be in captivity forever. Dark times call for hope and promises. While the book of Nehemiah is pointing forward to the ultimate fulfillment 
of God's covenant promises in Jesus. It is a stake in the ground 400 years before Jesus ever arrives. It's a memorial stone, a bookmark in the grand story of God's redemption that God fulfills smaller promises so we can be confident he's going to fulfill greater promises. Moments that require courage and character are always dark. They are battles that are wearying. They are stresses that seem unrelenting. They are seasons of confusion and fear, and they scream for some hope in the darkness. Our temptation in the midst of those crises moments is either to stop and do nothing, uh, to give up all hope, to think that there is no answer. We are prone to believe this in dark seasons, that this dark season is my life instead of a season of my life. And so he gives us promises promises to point us ahead to hope. He promises, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. He promises to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you, but I will come back. He says, I will teach you all things. He says, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He says that he will send his spirit to empower us. These are all promises. And for some of you this morning, some of those may feel very big and some of them may feel very small, but all of them point to the greater promise. He is coming back. When no more will God's people simply gather in small settings on Sunday mornings and say we're God's covenant people. But there will come a day when we number as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heavens and we see Christ face to face. And all those people who have mocked him in derision will bow the knee. Make no mistake, you'll bow here, you'll bow there, but you will bow before King Jesus. We need to be reminded of the promises of God to have hope in dark times. What promises are you so aware of today that you see him fulfilling? Dark times don't just call for promises, though, or for hope. They also call for action. It's hard when we're confronted by hard times. We want to stop and shake instead of move forward. Now, I'm not talking about moving for movement's sake. But Nehemiah is going to teach us that the enemies of God, sometimes they will come from outside, but frequently, frequently, they come from inside. They come from places you would never expect. Uh, one prominent preacher said this, it's like when you play football, you expect the other team to try to tackle you. It's brutal when your own team tackles you. Nehemiah is going to tell us in times of crisis, sometimes people that we thought we could trust, we thought were our friends, we thought that they were with us. Sometimes, sometimes times of crisis teach you this. People who said they were with you, it's revealed they're not actually on God's side with you. But Nehemiah will also teach us that when God's, Mission for his glory is clear. There is no more stopping and waiting. It's time to get moving in obedience. We won't be able to see the victory. See, what's stunning about these leaders, even those that I quoted at the start of the sermon, whether it's Churchill or Roosevelt, whether it's Shackleton, whether it's the three Hebrew boys, they actually didn't know. And what people want is they want some kind of a promise from a human leader that they know it's going to happen, even though you know on the inside they can't really, you just want to hear it. And instead, what leaders do is they call us to obey. They call us to action. And they base their promises on God's promises. I love this promise of Jesus. I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a glorious promise just to remind you, just to remind you, gates are not used offensively, they're used defensively. In other words, what he says is, oh, my people, my covenant people, stop acting and living and thinking that you're constantly under assault. I am instituting the church because you are assaulting Satan's kingdom. Dark times call for action. Built on obedience. And the last thing is dark times call for the light of the word. One of the transformative attempts by Nehemiah is a call to revival by hearing the word read and explained so that it can be obeyed. Nehemiah is one guy. He can't do it all. His moment is frankly a lot like our, our moments. It's like a Winston Churchill, Roosevelt, or Shackleton. And what I mean by that is we feel alone. It looks alone. Often we are alone. But we, like Nehemiah, should know this truth. Everyone who claims God needs to be on mission for the glory of God. So how on earth, how on earth can Nehemiah get everybody else motivated to get on mission? Well, Nehemiah knows he actually doesn't have the power. There's no power of a speech. There's no, there's no, uh, th no thermometer he could build. This is the progress we're making. There's, like, what are the, how do you motivate? Because Nehemiah knows this at the core. If God's people are going to be on God's mission, God's going to have to motivate them. So what do I do? Well, Nehemiah does exactly what you and I should do. He brings the word to bear. And he calls other people to get on mission with him. Listen now, listen. A huge motivating factor for others who may be stymied in the crises, who might feel the weight of the darkness and the pressure and not know what to do, a huge motivating factor that God chooses to, you, to use is when other people see other people living in obedience and zeal. He calls the church to provoke one another to love and to good works. He tells us that let, let your light so shine that others would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He tells us that when we love one another, that's how the world knows that we're his followers. In other words, as people see us living as God's covenant people, it helps to drive them by the power of the word to obey as well. I guess I just want to ask you this question to close our introduction to Nehemiah this morning, can you begin to see the moments of your life that are so scary, that are so hard, that are so difficult? Yes, as moments to show character and courage in God's power, but also as moments that God intends to use to show his faithfulness. How did you come through that, God's faithfulness? How are you moving God's faithfulness. How are you pressing on God's faithfulness? Nehemiah is a call to embrace a zeal for God's glory and stand back and see what he can do. I want to call us as we begin to study Nehemiah here at our church, be on mission for the glory of God because God is faithful to his promises.